Hello and welcome to Crimes and Witch Demeanors. I'm your host, Joshua Spellman. Once again, I apologize. This episode was recorded at the same time-ish as episodes one and two. So aside from a couple of minor audio adjustments, I apologize again if I am doing something that you hate. However, there is a fun little update. So I'm doing a giveaway if you leave a review of the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. I run an Etsy shop where I sell hand-poured soy candles and I sell crystal jewelry. So it's going to be a little gift pack that has two candles and two pieces of jewelry. It's worth like 80 bucks. So if you're in the U.S., you are eligible. I'm sorry, shipping candles is very expensive. I tried shipping some to my friend in the U.K. and it costs like $80 and never again. So if you want just free stuff, it's super easy. Just send me an email or a DM letting me know that you left a review and you're going to be entered to win. It's super easy. Just give me some five stars, say that you love me, even if you hate me, and get free stuff. I mean, what else could you want? Except for maybe me to actually just tell you the story we're going to be talking about today. Today's location is Murder Creek. And yes, If you haven't guessed it already, there is a lot of murder that happens there. So there are two stories that we're going to talk about today. One is the legend of Murder Creek, which gave it its name because it wasn't always called Murder Creek until you know the murder. And then um, there's more murder that happened there. And that is one of my new favorite cases of historic true crime, the curious case of murderess Sadie McMullen. The sources for our first story vary a bit, but I've acquired most of the information from the book The Life of General Eli S. Parker, The Last Grand Sachem of the Iroquois, and General Grant's Military Secretary, written in 1919 by Arthur Caswell Parker and published by the Buffalo Historical Society. This book is accessible in its entirety from the Internet Archive at archive.org. However, it should be noted that the story that Arthur Caswell Parker tells in this book is copied word for word from the 1906 book written by Uriah Cummings called The Haunted Corners. So Uriah Cummings' book was written to explain the ghosts that he claimed lived on his property, and in that is The Legend of Murder Creek. There's only one remaining copy of this book left in existence, and it's housed at the Buffalo and Erie County Historical Society's Research Library. Since I wasn't able to access that, the copied version in Parker's book is good enough for me. So the legend of Murder Creek appears to be an actual version of historic events, um, unsure, but the newspapers for the murder case we're going to be covering briefly kind of touched on it. The story seemed different, but I think that was due to just brevity of the newspaper article about the insane murderess Sadie McMullen. And Uriah Cummings claims that he owned the diary of John Dolph, who this story kind of centers around, um, and that John Dolph's property once stood on his land. And I did look it up, and the Dolph family was real, and they did live on his land. They are buried in Ledgelawn Cemetery. You can find photographs of their graves on findagrave.com. If I have them, I will put them in this week's Instagram post at Crimes and Witch Demeanors on Instagram. I always put scans and photos from the stories. So if you want to go, go ahead and check that out. And then other sources I use for the story include eerie.gov, the official county website, and newyorkfalls.com. And just in advance, I'm going to be saying some words that I'm definitely going to mispronounce. They are, I believe they're supposed to be Seneca words. I'm not sure if they actually even are, but I don't speak Seneca. And some of them are names of the characters, and I'd rather say them than their anglicized names. I don't know, it just seems weird to 
call them a different name when that's not their name. So I apologize in advance for any mispronunciations. Before Murder Creek obtained its haunting name, it was known to the native Seneca tribes as Deon Gote, Gahunda, or the place of hearing. Other sources claim that the original name is Sion Gut, or the roar of distant waters. Colonizers knew it as Sulphur Creek, as indicated on maps at the time. As with most early settlements by colonizers, water was an incredibly important resource to live near. And in the spring of 1820, a white settler known as John Dolph built his cabin on the shores of the creek, with eventual plans to erect a sawmill with his business partner, Peter Van Deventer, using the creek's water as a power source. One chilly October evening, while Dolph was poring over his plans with his wife, they heard a blood-curdling scream emanate from the woods outside. Concerned, John and Sarah leapt to their feet and threw open their door. Running towards them was a young native woman, wildly out of breath, shouting, Save me! Please! Please save me! And begging for refuge. The Dolphs obliged without hesitation, ushering the woman inside and promptly barring their front door. Within moments of securing the latch, the door shook violently on its hinges. Let me in, a man bellowed, throwing his weight against the door. John stalled the unknown assailant by beginning to ask him questions, while simultaneously motioning for his wife to hide the young woman. Sarah opened a trap door that led outside, escaped into the night, and led the young woman to the mouth of a nearby cavern. Meanwhile, the man impatiently responded to John's inquiries, explaining that his name was Sanders and that the girl was his prisoner. Her father, an Indian chief, placed her in his care because she wished to marry a, quote, bad Indian. Sanders asked again, albeit more politely, for entrance into the Dolph's home, and with the girl safely concealed from view, John Dolph obliged. Unbarring the door, John let Sanders inside. Sanders, panting and full of rage, surveyed the home he saw no signs of his prey. He glanced upward and spied the attic opening and a ladder leading up into the darkness. John lit a candle and handed it to Sanders, and I imagine he did so quite smugly. Please, feel free to look, he said. Sanders ascended the ladder and soon came back down in even more of a rage. That girl is here, he hissed. I saw her come in. Where's your cellar, he snarled, scanning the floorboards. John moved aside his carpet to reveal a trap door and bade Sanders to go down and investigate. Again, Sanders discovered nothing. No trace of the girl and no visible means of escape, aside from the ladder he had just descended. Making his way back up, Sanders swore and muttered beneath his breath that he would have the girl if it was the last thing he did. After a few more moments of scanning the home, in exasperation, Sanders said he was headed to the Canfield Tavern for a drink and quickly retreated into the night. After waiting some time, John Dolph reunited with his wife, and they cautiously made their way down the side of the gorge to the cave that sheltered the young girl, located a little ways north of the falls. With the autumn moon shining brightly overhead, the Dolphs surveyed their surroundings. They looked up and down the dirt path, into the forest, and along the banks of the stream and saw no one. Satisfied that they were not being followed, they entered the cave. However, though the moon illuminated the night... It could not penetrate the dense canopy of trees, and the Dolphs failed to notice the figure of a large man crouched beneath the shadows of a large pine. The Dolphs entered the chamber and found the girl asleep, 
passed out from exhaustion. And upon hearing their approaching footsteps, the girl shot up in fright. Where is he? She cried. Sarah calmed the young girl, assuring her that she was safe. And it was then that she recounted her tale of horror. It was said that her account of events was recorded by John Dolph in his diary and was reproduced by Cummings in his book. Though I will be paraphrasing. In his book, Cummings notes his surprise at the young girl's fluency in English and attributes it to the fact that she was most likely a student at the mission school in Tonawanda. And I just find it important now to mention that these mission schools often forcibly took young children from their parents to be enrolled in these schools and academies and forced to assimilate to American culture under extremely harsh conditions of abuse. These mission schools played a major role in the cultural genocide of Native American people, their erasure, Pan-Americanism, and just the decimation of so many Native nations. Uh, And the painful echoes that these schools had still ring throughout today. And it's created so much generational trauma. And I feel like not enough people know this, that these types of schools were even being run into the 1980s. So let's not forget that um, our country is pretty crappy. And these schools, though they gave this young woman great English, were horribly traumatic and kind of uh, just another form of genocide. Uh, Yeah. So anyways, back to our story. The young girl's name was Aweha, or as she said in the, quote, language of the pow face, Wild Rose. She explained that she lived near Spirit Lake, beneath the cliff, about a mile from the Tanawanda Falls. Her mother had died several years ago, and she lived with her elderly father, Gawana, meaning the Great Fire, who was a chief of the Seneca Nation. Just moments before Aweha happened upon the Dolphs, her father had been brutally murdered by Sanders. Sanders had been stalking Aweha for over a year, asking for her hand in marriage repeatedly. However, she already had a love, Teyone, or Grey Wolf, who she was to marry. Enraged by this, Sanders vowed that instead of ever seeing Aweha marry a Seneca, he would rather murder all of those who stood in his path. Because of this vow, Aweha took it upon herself to prevent her love, Teyone, from crossing paths with Sanders, for she knew that if he were to harm Sanders, even in self-defense, the authorities would not listen to his story and would punish him regardless of his innocence. So, Gowana, in an attempt to protect his daughter, decided to send her away to the Cataraugus Nation. There, she could be safely joined by her fiancé, Teyone, away from the bloodthirsty clutches of Sanders. So that morning, Aweha and her father set out to Teosoa, known as the City of Buffalo. When they reached the banks of the Deongote, Gahanda, or the modern-day Murder Creek, they sat down to listen to the waterfall for a while and rest. It was then that they saw Sanders approaching. However, he approached them with his hand outstretched, apologizing for his past actions. He smiled wide as he explained to them that he made up his mind to let go of Aweha and that he hoped she would be happy with Teyone. He explained that he was currently making his way to the Wild West to start his life anew and had not expected to ever see Ewaha or her father ever again. However, as fortune had it, they appeared to be headed in the same direction and Sanders offered to help them on their journey to atone for his past sins. After a brief moment of hesitation, they agreed to travel together. They walked for some time more and then set up camp for the night. Here, while they were making the fire, Aweha stared into the east and saw a light in the valley not far away. And at that very moment, she was startled by a loud sound followed by a groan. She turned to see that her father was lying on the ground, face down in the dirt, 
and looming over him was Sanders with an uplifted club in his hands. Sanders smiled the devilish grin and moved to attack Aweha, but she was swift. Quickly, she made her way to the east, down towards the light in the distance, which happened to be Dolph's residence. And, well, we kind of know the rest. So after hearing her story, the Dolphs resolved to protect Aweha. John made his way to the camp that she had described, and here he found the smoldering coals of the campfire and the lifeless body of her father, Gowana. Here is a spot that later became known as the Haunted Corners. Later, when dawn finally broke, John and his business partner, Peter Van Deventer, buried his remains and learned that Sanders had apparently taken the Buffalo stagecoach at midnight and was nowhere to be found. Word of the tragedy had quickly spread to the Seneca Nation, and by the time that John returned home, Teyone had already arrived to reunite with his love. Aweha was elated to see her lover and begged to visit the grave of her father, and together they made their way to the newly dug grave. Once there, Aweha and Teyone chanted a traditional death song, ignited a grave fire, and burned ceremonial tobacco. While enveloped in their grief and distracted by their funeral rites, something leaped from the underbrush. Brandishing an axe with a demonic glint in his eyes, Sanders bore down on the couple, but Teyone reached for his tomahawk, and a brawl quickly ensued. Both men lost handle on their axes and eventually reached for their hunting knives and began to furiously rip at each other's flesh. The blood flowed like a stream until suddenly, it was quiet. Sanders stopped motionless and fell to the ground. Frozen in fear, Ewaha could not move, and Teyone went to comfort her, but when he went to move his lips, he, he could not speak. He was too weak from the loss of blood. He swayed from side to side, staggered, and then fell dying on the grave of Ewaha's father. She let out a scream of pain which echoed through the woods all the way down to Dolph's home, and upon hearing this cry, John Dolph ran the quarter mile back to the camp. John found Ewaha sobbing, and between her heavy heaves, she uttered the traditional death chant. And John once again dug two more graves, one for Teyone and one for Sanders. Ewaha often visited the graves of her father, and her lost love to sing of her grief. One day, many moons later, the Dolphs did not hear from her. They searched high and low and came across Ewaha's lifeless body lying upon the grave of her love, seemingly having died of heartbreak. Here, she was buried between the graves of her father and her lover. And as legend has it, if you walk the trails of Murder Creek at night... You may hear the voices of the two lovers as they wander the modern trails. They were forsaken marriage and life, but have been united in death by an unbreakable bond. While it was these events that successfully changed the name of Sulphur Creek to Murder Creek, sadly, these were not the last murders to occur there. For our next story, we must fast forward 70 years to the year of 1890. It was October 31st, a spooky Halloween, just like any other, when 17-year-old Sadie McMullen made a routine trip to the local store to buy some butter. That Halloween day had been spent at the Brown home, engaging in songs and parlor games that were popular among girls at the time. A happy Halloween indeed. Sadie was accompanied on her trip to the Johnson store by six-year-old Delia Brown, the daughter of her widower boss, Simon Brown, and Delia's friend, 10-year-old Nellie Mae Connor. Previously, Sadie had worked as a servant in the Browns' household and helped take care of the late Mrs. Brown during her time of illness. 
And during her time there, she bonded with little Delia and was eventually kept on as a housekeeper and nanny after Mrs. Brown's passing. Once the girls arrived at the Johnson's store, Sadie began acting very strangely. She took out a quarter and slammed it on the counter, and she walked away before the store clerk could even get her butter from the icebox or give her her change. Now, mind you, a quarter in 1890 is the equivalent of $7.15 in 2020. And you know something's up if you literally just throw your money away. And it only gets creepier from here. After storming out of the store, Sadie, with the children in tow, walked to the New York Central Railroad Bridge that stood about 50 feet above the Murder Creek Gorge. She coaxed the children onto the center of the bridge before abruptly hurling Nellie Mae Connor into the rushing waters below. Then, Sadie turned on Delia, the girl who she supposedly loved like a daughter, and after a brief struggle, Sadie managed to heave her off the trestle as well. After committing these treacherous acts, Sadie made her way back to the Browns' home, walking through the front door without the children as if nothing had happened. Her boss, Simon, was not home as he was barkeeping at a saloon. Instead, Sadie was greeted by Hannah, Simon's sister. Hello, Sadie. Sadie just stared back at Hannah and held out her hand. Goodbye, Hannah. Where are you going? Hannah asked, confused. Well, fine. If you don't want to shake hands with me, well, then all right, Sadie exclaimed and turned on her heels, storming out of the house. And it was then, as Sadie was leaving, that Hannah realized the children were no longer with her. Concerned, Hannah went to tell her father of her apprehensions. In the midst of her explanation, Simon happened to stop by, and Hannah also relayed her worries to him. Simon simply looked at her and laughed and assured her the children were in good hands. Sadie could never hurt a soul. Meanwhile, Sadie made her way through the dark to a bridge behind the saloon that Mr. Brown owned. This bridge was much smaller than the trestle bridge on the railroad, a mere 10 feet from the water. Sadie made her way to the center and looked down at the stream below her. She took a deep breath and then dove into the water. Now appearing to drown, Sadie screamed in the night, and Sadie was eventually rescued from the waters by the father of Delia and his friend, George Jones. After being pulled from the water, Sadie screamed and shrieked that they put her back in the water immediately. But against her wishes, they carried the hysterical girl back to the Browns' family home, where a doctor was called to tend to her. Where are the children? The family demanded. What, what children? Sadie replied, confused. Delia, where is Delia? Was she, was she with me? Yes. Well, last I remember, she was at the Johnson store, Sadie replied, running her fingers through her hair. Why, why is my hair so wet? A search party was sent out for the girls, and Nellie Mae Connor was soon discovered, her lifeless body twisted in a horrible manner, her eyes staring up empty and hollow to the bridge some 50 feet above her. Then, hours later, around 3 a.m., the search party heard a moan, and followed it to find that Delia had survived. As they carried little Delia up the gorge, they heard her mutter weakly beneath her breath. Sarah thought she was smart to throw us off the bridge.
Sadie was soon brought to trial and, if convicted, she was to become the first woman to be put to death by the newly invented electric chair. Now, people seemed very enthralled by this story of Sadie McMullen. I read a lot of contemporaneous news articles at the time about her trial. Sure, she was probably going to be the first woman to be electrocuted, but there was so much mystery and intrigue surrounding this story, which Victorians, as we know, love. So the headlines were sensational and probably par for the course even to this day. A lot of the articles focused on her appearance a lot, which I found strange, but again, not surprising. Quickly, I just want to share my favorite news headline. Um, It's from the Buffalo Daily Times from November 4th, 1890. So just a couple days after the incident. This picture is going to be on the Instagram because it's just like a very pleasing typography. But this is what the headline is. Her love, the secret of Sadie McMullen's hideous crime, a telltale letter. Mrs. O'Connor thinks she was led by the devil. My spirit will come to him. In a letter, the murderer said that she should commit suicide and take someone with her. She asked to be buried in Akron so she could be near the one she loved. Very dramatic, very Victorian, we stand. So I just wanted to read this excerpt from the article, again, a very long title, On Trial for Her Life. Is Sadie McMullen guilty of child murder? So young and so pretty. Could she have done such a deed? Um, et cetera, et cetera. From... The World, which is a New York publication, uh, published March 6, 1891. And the quote is as follows. Pale and slender as she is, and dressed in exquisite, though simple taste, her long brown hair falling in thick waves around her face and shoulders, she looks more like a child of ten than a girl of seventeen, who is barged with a most awful crime, and whose life depends on the ability of her lawyers and the mercy of the jury but she either does not mind or does not realize her position. For every once in a while, she turns her face to the sunlit windows and smiles as though she were happy and contented. And then she scans the women who throng the courtroom, only to sit back in her chair with a weary air, as though the whole affair and her presence in court were such a bore. Her face, while not particularly intelligent, is pretty, It bears a chic expression, which is taking, and she has a naive way of pursing her lips, which at times is quite fascinating. There is nothing in her manners or her features that would indicate insanity or any other spirit than that of peace and girlish love. So while maybe her manners did not belie that she had any other spirit than girlish love, uh, her past was pretty full of trauma. Sadie was plagued by mental and physical illness as well as abuse. An Irish-American, Sadie was raised in poverty with an absentee father and a mother that was described as, quote, an irritable, quick-tempered, troublesome woman with suicidal and homicidal tendencies, which honestly sounds like my mom, so can relate. Sadie appeared to also suffer from epileptic seizures, and she often lost time beginning very early in her childhood, and it was presumably something that she had inherited from her mother and was related to her epilepsy. Sadly, when Sadie was only three, her mother came across a bear in the woods of Wisconsin, and she wasn't attacked by the bear, but she was so frightened she ran to a nearby house for help and then just died, uh, apparently from shock and At the age of 12, after living with her alcoholic father, her half-brother, and her younger sister, they all traveled by foot 
from Wisconsin to Buffalo, New York, which is very far. And eventually they made their way into Akron. And it's said that Sadie's strange behaviors didn't stop once she got to Akron. One time, Sadie had found herself atop a ladder picking cherries miles and miles from home. And then another time, she found herself at her front door in her underwear. Her clothes were tucked underneath her arm and were soaking wet, and she could not remember why. All of these stories of her losing time were never brought up until the trial, so it's debatable whether she was insane, but let's just give her the benefit of the doubt. Sadie did show many signs that her murders were premeditated and not due to one of these epileptic blackouts. Two days prior to the murder, she sent a letter to her aunt in Buffalo on October 29th, and part of it reads, I don't care if I never hear from him. I won't look at him when I come back. You will find that I ain't as soft as I look. And this was clearly about some liaison with a lover. And then, on Halloween, the day of the murders, Sadie received a letter while in the company of Simon Brown's sister, Hannah, While Hannah didn't know what the letter contained, she could tell that Sadie was upset by it. And it was a letter that was sent from a servant at one of Sadie's former employers in Buffalo, and she was accusing her of stealing diamonds and valuables from the mansion that she worked at. So this upset Sadie, and she couldn't really hide her emotions, and Sadie ran home to pen the following letter to her aunt. Dear Auntie, when you get this, I will be far from Earth. I am sick and tired of living, and as I told you, my last hope is come at last. I am thankful to die. People rebuke me for things that I am not guilty of, and as I have no one to love me, I can go in peace. As my heart, I leave in Akron with the one I always spoke to you of, as he seems not to care for me. I know it is a sin to put an end to myself, but I am not the only one. My brain is longing for the end. Now if I only had my little brother to take with me, I would be happy. If I had died when I was young, how thankful I would have been. But as it is, I must die as it is. So tell my sister that I love her as much as ever. But I could not stay with her. I hope you will see to them, as I know you will. And when I am dead, I will come to you and explain, but do not fear me. I will not hurt you, and the man I loved will know me as a frequent visitor. Oh dear, if it was only over, how thankful would I be? I think I will take someone with me. And so I will close my last letter on earth, hoping God will do justice with me as he does with everybody. So when you get this, you will know that I am no more. You will find my body in the basin in Buffalo. Please bury me in Akron as I will be near my loved one. So goodbye from Sadie, your no more niece. It was said that the letter was written in a haphazard scrawl that didn't quite resemble Sadie's own handwriting and Sadie herself couldn't quite remember writing it. So I'm thinking either someone else made it for the newspapers or she really had written it in one of these epileptic fits. Later, it was also discovered that the stolen valuables that were mentioned in the first letter from her former employer were actually recovered and Sadie seemingly just misplaced them in one of her blackouts, just putting them someplace where they didn't belong. So who was this man that Sadie was obsessed with? Rumor has it that Sadie was in love with Simon Brown and was jealous of Mrs. Eliza Connors, a widow and Nellie May's mother, whom was said to be involved with Simon. It was also believed that Sadie and Simon were actually once engaged, but he had put an end to it because of either Eliza or just because it was inappropriate or he 
realized that she might have been a little in little off her rocker, but people believe the murders were to exact revenge on her former lover and his new betrothed, but these are completely unfounded and kind of were just based in these sensationalist headlines. Which I want to just note that while now, it being 2020, these newspaper articles are considered primary sources because they are reporting of the time. But I mean, at the time, they were not primary sources. They were secondary or tertiary sources. So whenever you're reading historic newspapers, while they seem like primary sources, they also have a lot of their own biases there. And one of those is like to sell newspapers. So... A lot of these stories that come up, there's no basis in fact, and it's kind of confusing. Like Hannah said a lot of things like, oh, she was possessed by the devil. I saw it in her eyes. But then in another article, she was like, oh, but Sadie would never hurt a child. So while these sources are historical, they are also very tabloidish, which is just the fun of Victorian newspapers, honestly. They're, the stories, the way that they write headlines is just so insane. But like this was their Kardashians honestly. That all being said, Sadie's trial was extraordinarily short, and it only lasted two days. She was actually acquitted of the crimes due to insanity. Even though all the newspapers said she didn't seem insane, all the witnesses said she didn't seem insane, but the medical community in Buffalo believed that she had carried these acts out in an epileptoid state, and she was not at fault for it. So the medical community decided that she should be institutionalized and treated. And so, Sadie was sent to the Buffalo State Asylum for the Insane, which, by the way, is very famous for its architecture. It served as some inspiration for movies and video games, and I literally went to undergrad next door. Like, the insane asylum that's still being used and my school share the same grass. Um, It was really interesting. But anyways, after only a year and a half of Sadie being in the asylum for treatment, the asylum superintendent, J.B. Andrews, said, quote, that she is now perfectly sane, end quote, and they just released her. That's it. And even the newspapers at the time, I thought there might be some outrage that Sadie got out, and I was just reading some of the sources, and they were just like, yeah, uh, Sadie got out. She's she's cured now. Which, A, I think is rare for them to just be like, oh, someone's cured of mental illness instead of just torturing them. But it's also weird that they just didn't report on it. So it also begs the question, like, was she just faking it since all these stories of her history of mental illness kind of came out of nowhere and then she was miraculously cured and let go? Was she faking being insane just to avoid the death penalty? And then once she was in treatment at the asylum, she was like, oh, wow, I'm miraculously better. Um, I don't know. It's weird to me. And one of her descendants um, has talked a lot in YouTube videos and stuff and tries to spin it as like, this is a tragic story about Sadie and mental illness and all this stuff. And it's like, yes, mental illness is very important. I'm not going to crap on that. It's very, very important. But let's also not forget that this woman's story isn't that tragic. She went to the asylum for a year and a half and then she was let go. And she kind of just fell into obscurity. No one knows what happened to her. Some people say she went to Kansas. Others claim she went to California. But ultimately, no one knows what happened to Sadie McMullen. But in the end, she lived and a child died. And another child was permanently injured because of her actions. So while yes, the mental illness angle is very important to focus on that part of the story, it's also important to focus on the fact that a child's life was taken for no reason. And this woman didn't spend much time 
in even in the asylum, they just let her go. And what was to stop her from doing it again? I don't know. But that's a complicated issue, I suppose. But I don't, I don't know if I really buy that Sadie was insane. It just seems all too convenient that she just got out after a year. That's like unheard of. It's anyways, I don't know. Maybe I'm being problematic. So I used a number of sources for that story. I will put them as usual in the show notes. So just a quick runoff of the newspaper sources that I did use was that um, Buffalo Daily Times article, uh, news articles from the Pittsburgh Dispatch, The World, and The Montrose Democrat, which were all published between 1890 and 1891. And then also another great source um, was an article called Murder Creek, The Sorry Case of Sadie McMullen, written by Buck Quickly and published in Art Voice magazine in 2016. And I also used findagrave.com to verify the age of Nellie Mae Connors because every single newspaper reported her as a different age, anywhere from four years old to six years old to eight years old to 10 years old to 11 years old. And Find a Grave said that she was 10. So that's kind of the date that I went with. Um, I didn't bother checking census records. Also because at the time before, the census record that would have been before her would have been the 1880 and she wouldn't have been born. And then 1890, she actually might have been on, but I digress. So yes, that is the curious case of Sadie McMullen and the legend of Murder Creek. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know it was a little bit different, but these stories to me are fascinating. Again, look at the podcast Instagram for some images and scans of these articles and places at Crimes and Witch Demeanors on Instagram. Please enter the giveaway. Leave us a great review, even if you hate me, even if you hate my stories and my voice and my sound engineering. If you hate it all, if you leave me a nice review, you can get some really neat presents. And it sounds like I'm paying you all off. And that's honestly how I got through middle school and high school is just giving people things to be my friend. And I'm hoping to do that with you. So if you could please leave that review and then send me a message letting me know that you did that so I can enter you in for the giveaway. So enough of me chatting away with my horrid mouth noises. I'm sure I'm very dehydrated because all I do is drink coffee. Um, thanks for listening. And I hope to see you next week. And hopefully I will have some feedback to fix all of my horrible mistakes. But until then, stay spooky.